This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey. Community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's WPRB News and Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. For about as long as I can remember, people have been heralding the death of the movie theater. First with Netflix's DVDs by mail, and then with streaming, and now, while God forbid TikTok, analysts, writers, and crotchety old people alike have been saying the beloved cinema is headed for its grave. To join payphone booths and telegraph offices as physical relics of a long-gone culture. Surpassed by new technologies that promise ease and convenience, the movie theater should be dead, right? Why don't we all watch the new releases on our flat screens at homes, with their 4K displays and surround sound? Can't I make popcorn on the stove? But like that Nicole Kidman AMC commercial says, there's just something so magical about a night at the movies. A distinct difference between putting a film on the TV and going to see it on the silver screen. So this evening on WPRB News and Culture, we bring you three stories about the joys and intricacies of cinema. What about the movies get us excited? What about their nature perturbs us? And most important of all, what it is about going for a night at the theater that changes a film from just a video with sound to become an experience in itself. First up, Navani Rachamalu and Sophie Laheni learn about the inner workings and philosophy of a nonprofit theater in our own backyard, the Princeton Garden Theater. Then, Tommy Golding takes a look at the trailer for the new film Napoleon and tries to figure out what about it has gotten history buffs so hot and bothered. And finally, in a story from our archives, I speak with researcher Adam Golub on why twins and doppelgangers have for so long been a fixture of horror movie culture. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News & Culture. First up, Navani Rachamalu and Sophie Laheni learn about the inner workings and philosophy of a nonprofit theater in our own backyard, the Princeton Garden Theater. The lights dim, the screen brightens, and there's nothing WPRB loves more than Night at the Movies. In honor of this week's movie-themed news and culture episode, Navani and I decided to go talk to our local theater, the Princeton Garden Theater, and find out what stories were being shot, edited, and shown just down the street. The Garden Theater, located at 160 Nassau Street in Princeton, has been a non-profit theater since the 1920s. Originally, the theater was used by the Princeton Triangle Performing Group, but it's been showing movies since the late 1920s. Since then, the theater has changed ownership many times, closed, reopened, and undergone renovations, and has seen a long history of film. In order to learn more about the space, its history, and its future, we sat down with Julia Mahoney, the Educational Programming Administrator, to talk about the Princeton Garden Theater. 
So just to get us started, why don't you introduce yourself and explain a little bit your role at the theater. Hi, I'm Julia Mahoney. I'm the Educational Programs Coordinator at the Princeton Garden Theater. I've been working on and off at the theater for about seven years, and I've been in my current role for around two. Up next, how would you describe the Garden Theater and the role you guys play in the community? Well, we are a small, independent, nonprofit theater, which is interesting because we're, we're part of this little independent movie theater company, uh, which is actually based in Pennsylvania. So we have that little network, but then also, as time goes on, we're trying to be more and more particular to Princeton. So with that, uh, we have something called our Prof Picks series, where we'll have professors choose a film, do an intro, uh, do a Q&A afterward. And because the university is right across the street, we really get a lot of unique opportunities. Um, sometimes different departments will come if they want to bring a director in. So we, we try to be more than just a movie theater, kind of try to have events that um, you wouldn't see other places. Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the theater? We know that when it first opened, it was originally for the Princeton Triangle Club, but we know a lot has also changed and happened since. We were founded in 1920. Um, originally, it was one theater with a balcony, but now it's a twin, so it's, it's two different ones. Um, the university is actually our landlord right now. So the company that operates it is different, but the university owns the building. And they, uh, I think they were pretty particular with who went in because they wanted it to do well. I know at one point it was called The Pit. It's like really looked, looked down upon as kind of nasty. Um, and there were also two different movie theaters in Princeton at one point. The other one, I believe, was in Palm Square. And it is closed now. So what kind of community events do you have, specifically those targeted for people beyond the university? I know when Navani and I met you today, you were hosting a table for the Children's Book Fair associated with the Public Library. What other events do you have for like children and families and for people of the Princeton community more generally? We're hoping that we're going to be more integrated into the community over time. Um, you know, there's different, different aspects of the community. We, we've had been tapped into the older members of the community for a while. We found though, um, in post-COVID, we've actually gotten more students to come and our special events, we've been allowed to change them a little bit to try to bring in a younger audience and like diversify the type of things we're offering. So we're doing more with community partnerships. The Princeton Public Library and the McCarter have both been really nice to us. So today we got to go to the Children's Book Festival and meet a lot of families. We're bringing back our $5 family matinee series and for that it's um again we're trying to something more than just a kids film like we want to show Coraline in October a little dark a little bit weird and then have a craft involved with it um we will try to do events together like we're, we're putting something together for Killers of the Flower Moon and that was initially uh, the library and us we were trying to find somebody but then a group on campus um, of indigenous graduate students reached out, so I think we're gonna have some of them talk. How is programming for the movie theater chosen and what kind of curation goes into creating like a lineup of programming at the theater? Because we're only two screens, it can be kind of tricky because some people will want their movie to be playing all of your show times throughout the day. So say we have three show times and we want to show Oppenheimer. And it's a, doing, it's a movie that's doing really well, it's a big movie. It's gonna to want to be showing at every show time. Barbie is also going to be wanting, wanting to be showing at every showtime. So if you have two big movies like that, there's no room for special events. So we, we can only really have one movie 
that's playing clean at a time. Otherwise, our special events kind of get smushed. So sometimes people will be like, oh, why aren't you playing this? Why aren't you playing that? We want to, but we have to wait so that we can keep our special events going, which I think is um, some of the most important stuff that we do and like the most unique programming that we do. What has been your favorite special event that the theater has done? Well, we had Ryusuke Hamaguchi come mm-hmm. um, for Drive My Car. And he, he did some intros, which was really cool, and we got to meet him. But also, just, just where people are having a, a good time. Like we're showing the Stop Making Sense re-release right now, but I remember we showed it back in 2017, just like regular Stop Making Sense. And we had the record exchange come, and WPRB came, and people were dancing in the aisles, which I, I was like, it's, such a, like, it's not something that you experience that often. So I think um, I, I like stuff like that as well. What do you think makes the Garden Theater so special? We did something with the YWCA about um, the, the history of racism in Princeton, which you're not going to see that at an AMC. And it can be like a little bit uncomfortable, but uh, bringing up important conversation. I think that, uh, that is what kind of sets us apart. We know that the movie industry has gone through a lot of changes, particularly in recent years with the rise of streaming services and the ability to just watch movies on your computer all the time. From a theater perspective, what do you, how, what do you make of these changes to the movie theater industry and how have you guys had to adapt or persevere through these changes? In terms of the way people are going to see the movies, we have noticed that our younger demographic has become a more powerful demographic. We've, known, we've noticed that a special event, people want to leave their houses for a special event for something that they're, that's not just you know streaming or for something that they're going to get something else out of. Um, and we do have a program that we started during the pandemic. Uh, it's called Deep Focus, and it's one of our educational initiatives. And for that, what we do is we'll play a movie at all of our different theaters or a few of our different theaters. And then we'll have somebody on Zoom who's an expert, whether we have like a TCM writer, we have professors, we have people in the business who will do a half an hour talk and then a half an hour Q&A. And it's totally free, which I think is also um, cool and important. And we save those on YouTube. So people who want film education, who don't have access to it, if they can access a computer or any sort of device, they can join live or they can, they can join later. Lastly, do you have any events that you would like to plug, any upcoming things at the theater that you want our listeners to know about? So something that we have coming up, uh, we're doing a few different movies with the um, Slavic Languages and Literatures Department. They are bringing in Ukrainian directors, and this is the type of thing that uh, I think is super cool. It might not be directors that people are totally familiar with, but I think... um, now is really the time to to support these type of things. So we're playing Klondike on Friday, October 27th. We're playing Butterfly Vision on Sunday, October 29th. And we also just like, we have a bunch of fun programming too. Like we, we have a bunch of fun Halloween programming that really runs the gamut. So if you're in the Princeton area, definitely check out some of those events or any of the many others happening at the Garden Theater. We had a great time speaking with Julia and learning more about the theater and the community it creates. I, for one, will definitely be checking out some of their horror movie reruns as we get closer to the Halloween season.
WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up, Tommy Golding takes a look at the trailer for the new film Napoleon and tries to figure out what about it has gotten history buffs so hot and bothered. attracted a lot of attention in certain dank and dreary corners of the internet where history obsessives like to critique the accuracy of the buttons on the uniforms of the French army, the hairstyles of women in the background, the chronology of the events depicted. It's a bit odd, for two reasons at least. First, there's something about the way these history obsessives love for their discipline translates into obstinate dislike of any attempt to engage with that discipline or its source material, to use history creatively rather than pedantically. But secondly, the film hasn't come out yet. Yes, that's right. All this debate, all this nitpicking and agonizing over a film that no one has yet seen outside of a three-minute trailer. I think it speaks to a change in how we engage with the film trailer itself as a medium, where once it served to inform us about a movie, briefly entice us, and get us to go see the rest, now the trailer is an event in itself, a precursor to the film experience that is fair game for judgment and critique for historical accuracy, an event that announces the film as a continuous cultural event, whose collection of reactions and takes begins long before the viewer sits in the theater chair to take in the full product. Think of the Barbie movie, where several trailers were released sequentially, with further details quote-unquote revealed each time, each frame analyzed and memed to death. These viral moments with the trailer established how the discourse over the film itself, once released, would flow. The trailer was a dress rehearsal for the film's reception. With all these caveats about trailer and hype culture in mind, Napoleon, from what we can see in the trailer, is a dark, action and romance-filled take on the French emperor. The trailer seems to slide over the French Revolution as a bunch of dirty mobs screaming and throwing tomatoes at nobility, a rabble that needed to be controlled. It's a simplistic and worrying beginning, but then the film is only two hours and 40 minutes long, or four hours on Ridley Scott's director's cut, which will be released on Apple TV, apparently. And we must remember, French politics are complicated. In fact, through the trailer's glimpses at the soft white light of the throne rooms and ballroom scenes and the gray and green faded modernity of the battlefields, I saw that the trailer only takes us up to 1805, 
Napoleon's great triumph against the Russians and the Austrians at Austerlitz. The invasion of Russia, Napoleon's exiles in the ocean, Waterloo, all of them are missing. But nothing in the film's promotional material indicates that we are only getting the first half of Napoleon's life. My thought, then, is that this movie might feel a little bit rapid and a little bit rushed to fit all this material in. So many vast and devastating campaigns in such a relatively short runtime. Especially if, as it seems, the filmmakers are committed to a long and intricate love story with Josephine, who appears practically chic in a pixie cut and wearing a choker. And if they're committed to long and presumably expensive shoots in the Egyptian desert. Now, to be fair, the Egyptian campaign itself was quite long and expensive in Napoleon's life, too. Here's hoping director Ridley Scott can find more success there in his rendition. There is a great deal of buzz around this movie. We can only hope it will become a classic of the historical film genre. Certainly the figure of Napoleon still fascinates. In what might have been a kind of psyoped viral marketing campaign, TikTok teens have recently been fascinated by Napoleon, editing clips from the trailer, pretending to have or empathizing with the emperor's megalomania, or giving him this typical Sigma male edit treatment. The film itself seems interested in subverting some of these Napoleonic myths. The trailer shows him being emasculated by his wife, Josephine, and calls him a tyrant on a title card screen. The jury's still out on the film's politics, obviously. We can only know so much from a three-minute trailer. So time will have to tell if this subversion comes across. From what I've seen in the trailer, this film will tell the story of the rise, but perhaps not entirely the fall of a seductively fascinating historical figure. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Tommy Goulding. WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Finally, in a story from our archives, I speak with researcher Adam Golub on why twins and doppelgangers have for so long been a fixture of horror movie culture. I think when many people think about twins, one of the first images that comes to mind is from Stanley Kubrick's classic horror film, The Shining. Two young girls in identical dress, in front of a long corridor, speaking in unison. Come play with us. There is something that scares us about this idea of replication. Of twins, but also of doppelgangers. Of reflections that feel unnatural. Today on News & Culture, as we explore stories about shared likenesses, I speak to someone who's an expert on this cultural fear of the twin. 
My name is Adam Golub. I'm a professor of American studies at California State University Fullerton, where I teach courses on literature, popular culture, music, and monsters. And I'm currently working on a uh, full-length book project that examines the cultural history of the doppelganger in uh, American culture. I want to make this clear. Professor Golub is not a researcher of twin studies. But I'm interested in the phenomenon of a second self that is uh, uh, kind of um, haunting you in some kind of way, makes its presence known. And there's a long history of this in the United States and in, in literature and in folklore and popular culture. And it even precedes the U.S. in Europe. And in fact, many cultures have, have uh, stories about uh, twins and doubles uh, in, their, in their kind of cosmology, in their art, in their, uh, in their stories. Professor Golub assured me that twins have been scary in America long before Stanley Kubrick even thought about The Shining. A lot of this starts in the 19th century. It begins uh, in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Edgar Allan Poe is the first American writer to have a, a kind of a full-length full short story that features a doppelganger. It's called William Wilson. It's published in 1839, and it's a story of a young man who leads this kind of dissolute, immoral life. And every time he's trying to do something bad and get away with it, his double shows up, his doppelganger shows up and foils his efforts to do some kind of immoral act. In fact, a major part of Golub's theory is that fear of the doppelganger and of the twin is a cyclical phenomenon. And then you have these kind of cycles throughout history of these, these peaks of popularity with the doppelganger. And I think we're in one right now, which we can, you know, we can certainly talk about. I, I think three things tend to be happening when the doppelganger becomes a popular figure. First of all, it speaks to questions of identity, right? Like moments when uh, identity is thrown into question, when our identity seems to be more fragmented, when we have new understandings of, of consciousness, of, of who we are. These are related to these kind of new stories about the doppelganger as a fragmented self. Second, doppelganger stories tend to uh, really leap in popularity when there are new technologies of duplication that have been invented. And by the way, these technologies of duplication, another peak, early motion pictures and film. Uh, this is another moment when we start to see doppelgangers turning up. And then you've got in the 1950s, there's another kind of spike of doppelgangers, especially alien doppelgangers, invader doppelgangers, body snatchers. And this also, we have to think about television. And this impact of new technologies onto the fear of doppelgangers and the fear of twins is not a phenomenon that stopped. We live multiple online versions of ourselves today. Our technology's ability to make multiple doubles, multiple replicants, um, seems to kind of get us thinking about what if we ourselves were duplicated in some kind of way. Golub's third cause for the cyclical fascination with doppelgangers? national unrest. When the body politic is especially divided, think about the decades leading up to the Civil War, North and South, right? This kind of um, America's shadow self. You also see this again in the, in the progressive era when you've got motion pictures on the rise. You have an influx of immigration. Um, you have, you know, reconstruction and, and uh, freed slaves. And you have this kind of moment when the culture is trying to assimilate um, a much broader diversity into its national identity, but that's also creating kinds of dilemmas about cohesion and what does it mean to be unified. 
rapport, all those alien doubles I was talking about, us versus them. Is there a communist living next door to me, right? Is there a communist um, um, that I married? And then, of course, I think it goes without saying that today in the era of, of, of Obama, Trump, and Biden, we have a deeply divided America. There's this kind of red state, blue state almost Jekyll and Hyde, right? Where one side, you know, is sees the other and they seem unrecognizable to them, familiar but strange. Beyond the historical causes, I asked Professor Golub what he thought about any psychological motivations for the fear of the doppelganger or the fear of the twin. There were new understandings of consciousness in the 1800s, you know, this idea of a, of a kind of person who could have a... Um, a divided personality could have a, a sleepwalking personality, a what they call the mental alien. You were alienated from your own self. And this was new discussions within criminology and psychology about a, a secret consciousness you couldn't quite understand or control. And if you've got Freud talking about this, you've got um, you've got Jung talking about this. You've got Otto Rank is another psychologist who writes about the doppelganger at, at length and influences Freud's thinking about this. But research into fear of doppelgangers from a psychological viewpoint didn't stop with Jung or Freud. Researchers have studied accounts of people who have autoscopic hallucinations. They believe that they see themselves in the external world. As our conversation drew to a close, I asked Professor Golub what I thought was probably the most important question for this interview, what his favorite pieces of twin-related horror media were. I love Us. I mean, I teach Us in my Monsters class, and, and there's just so much to think about with that film because it is in many ways about um, an uprising, about a revolution, and it's about replacement, right? That there's, I mean, talk about the divided body politic, that there's a version of ourselves that has been repressed or denied or marginalized that... Um, wants to come and take its due, so to speak. Apart from the 2019 Jordan Peele horror flick, Professor Golub had some historical answers too. One story that has taken on a life of its own ever since it first appeared in uh, the 1850s is a story about a Latvian school teacher named Emily Saji. All these students in her class would report and could, could verify that while their teacher was teaching, the teacher's doppelganger came into the room. Like if she was kind of at the board writing on the chalkboard, the doppelganger would walk in, stand behind her and kind of mimic her actions. There were stories of, of Emily Saji's doppelganger um, appearing behind her in, at, at the lunch table um, or being spotted in one place when the students knew the teacher was in another place. Yet due to her attraction from the author, the story of Emily Saji can't be found in print very often anymore. In the second edition and every edition afterwards, he pulled that story. He deleted it and he said, it turns out I can't really verify it. And so, you know, it, it was gone, but it was too late. That story was released into the culture. We love it. And it's just constantly out there, in a sense, duplicating itself over time. Now, I'll just add one more point. I'm a big fan of alien doppelganger stories. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a true classic. And uh, especially in the context of the 1950s, a second self emerges that is uh, kind of less emotional, less expressive, um, is more kind of uh, social in terms of conforming to a larger group agenda. And essentially, you're, you're this fear of, of individuality replaced by conformity. It also speaks to broader concerns about subversion and the enemy within. This comment from Professor Golub about body snatchers reminded me of a question that's been haunting me for a very long time. 
See, my roommate here at college, he's a twin. Should I be scared of him? Uh, I don't think you should feel trepidation. I myself have uh, twin sisters. I have younger sisters who are identical twins. Um, and uh, so I, I've, I've grown up with, with twins. Perhaps that's part of my interest in this topic. I think your bigger concern, Adam, would be if you happen to see your own double walk into the room one night, you want to beware. Because in some, in some folklore systems, seeing your double is a, is a premonition of death. Your doppelganger is never just there to kind of chill out with you on the couch and watch TV. They want something, right? They, they want to replace you. They want to eliminate you. They want to steal your identity. Um, they're rarely there to just join you because at the end of the day, there could only be one of you. But as for your roommate, I think, I think you have no concerns there. Well, I guess that was a reassuring answer in some regards. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Adam Sanders. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. This week's stories were reported, recorded, and produced by Navani Rachamalu, Sophie Lahenny, Tommy Golding, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Clara McWeeny, Izzy Jacobson, Natalia Maydeek, and Navani Rachamalu. The new theme music for our show is Take Me Higher by Jazar. All music used is under Creative Commons license. For more details, visit our website at news.wprb.com. Can't get enough of WPRB News and Culture? Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. WPRB News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.